0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. Hey, it's a great day to be alive, and I'm happy you're here. I'm grateful that you're here. I've had a lot to be grateful for the last couple of weeks, specifically friendships. Last week, I had a show in Memphis, Tennessee, where several dozen old friends came out and new ones, came out to hang out and hear some jokes. And I'm very grateful that they took the time out of their week to come on out and, and hang out with me and support me in my burgeoning comedy career. I also had the opportunity to go to Utah and do some skiing this week with some old buddies from college. Steve, Stephen and Jay, excellent hang as always. You know, in the past year and a half, as our group of pals has turned 50, we've been purposeful about taking some time to hang out together, even though we're all spread all over the country. And those quick vacations have been some very, very rewarding times that I won't forget as long as I'm walking on this planet with a brain that still works. And I'm grateful for that brain also. Hey, I've got a great conversation for you today with a guy named Dominic Holder. He's interesting. Why? Well, for a lot of reasons. But one of the main reasons is because he's both a business school professor and a practicing Buddhist. He's the author of a book called Mindfulness and Money and other books that I'll we'll talk about in a minute. And I read Mindfulness and Money recently, and I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with him, and I look forward to sharing that conversation with you in just a few minutes. Mindfulness is a word we hear a lot, and you'll hear Dominic and I speak about it, and I really liked his definition, uh, but it's a word you hear being thrown around a lot, like being in the moment, being more present, being more grateful, and all those things are important. They, they really are, and you know the number one driver of happiness that many longitudinal studies have found are social connections meaning if you have meaningful friendships relationships family members that you are going to be a more fulfilled human being and yet sometimes our behavior is in direct opposition of the of the opportunity to build social connections not even not even ones that that are going to last a lifetime but ones that just acknowledge humanity in somebody else like i'm trying to be more present in the world, like both at home and in public, and one of the ways that I'm doing it is when I'm out in the world, I try not to have my phone out and I try not to have my earbuds in, even though I'm constantly listening to another podcast or listening to a book for an upcoming guest that I'm going to have on the show. So when I'm out, you know, shopping for gala apples and Hawaiian rolls for my kids at the Kroger, I'm just trying to make eye contact, to smile at strangers at or you know the barista or the cashier, or the waiter, so that. I'm fully acknowledging their humanity, all right? Here's something I've noticed. When you take the time to make eye contact and smile at a stranger, many of them think that you are insane. It's true, it's absolutely true. <laughs> I heard it from a waiter not long ago and was careful to sustain eye contact and after like an uncomfortable beat, he looked at me, he was like, is, is there a problem? And so then I'm in the position of figuring out what to say such that I don't sound dangerous. You know, like <laughs> at what point you say, Uh, no, there's no problem. I was just hoping that you and I make some kind of a connection here. That would get you thrown out of a restaurant. Maybe the world isn't ready for true mindfulness and true human connection. Maybe all these devices have evolved so that we can have this protective layer around us. Would it be disconcerting to you if you were in a cafe and you heard some dude in the corner mumbling, this is me being present, enjoying my portobello and Grugier omelet? I'd find that to be disconcerting. What if you're an Uber driver? Do you really want to make that connection with the driver? Or do you just want to drive in peace and quiet, do your job and go home? As a passenger, you might be thinking that you want to do something to not perpetuate the social inequality of driver versus passenger. And you get in the front seat and say, hi, I'm Paul. Tell me about yourself. If you were an Uber driver, might you not look at him and be like, dude, you're making me uncomfortable. Get in the back seat. Maybe your Uber driver doesn't want you in the front seat. I don't know. Gratitude is another one of those things like you're supposed to have gratitude, but how much is enough? One of the early interviews for Crazy Money is with an author named AJ Jacobs. AJ, if you're listening, hello. Hope you're well. Stay warm. He's the author of a book called Thanks a Thousand. And in it, he tells the story of how he thanked a thousand people who helped produce his morning cup of coffee. From the cup manufacturer to the barista to the landlord of the coffee shop. He went so far as to fly to Colombia, the country, to thank the farmers who grew his beans. And he described this interaction with them. And I'm like, and as I read it, I was like, these people think he's crazy. Like Who is this lunatico who flew down here to say thanks? What a nutcase. I don't know. I don't know. Think about this. Try this. Invite a friend to lunch and leave your phone in the car. And after 15 minutes while he's sitting there scrolling through his Facebook or whatever, he's going to notice that you're not checking yours and you're just sitting there staring at him. He's going to be like, what's wrong? Are you you getting a divorce or something? Like, you're going to reply like, no, I just want to have an uninterrupted conversation, you know, to be present with you so we can really connect like our time is short in the world, let's, let's connect here. And he's gonna think you're insane. He's gonna be like, did you join Herbalife or something? Have you been born again? I mean, either way, I'm not interested, <laughs> so you know. Some degree of social isolation is necessary for survival. You gotta have some lair, right? Because there's always somebody out there trying to take advantage of you. You have to protect yourself from the creepy dude hitting on women or the creepy dude hitting on dudes, whatever. Or some people trying to sell you a sob story, life insurance, or their particular brand of salvation. And then there's just boring people. (laughs) You have to protect yourself from boring people. Don't turn off this podcast. Don't say I'm boring. (laughs) I'm talking about the boring people who corner you and ramble on like the ancient mariner at a wedding. You know, It's like, hey, Paul, did I ever tell you about the time I shot an albatross and everything turned to shit? Like, dude, I'm just here to party on somebody else's dime, okay? I'm not really interested in your tales of nautical woe. I got to go to the bathroom, catch you later. Then you go find your wife. Like, honey, don't leave me alone with that weird sailor. Anyway, these are thoughts on uh, mindfulness and gratitude and all that kind of stuff. And I got more for you. We got a better conversation. Speaking of mindfulness, as I said, uh, I just finished a book called Mindfulness and Money. Dominic Holt, uh, speaking of mindfulness, I just finished this book called Mindfulness and... Speaking of mindfulness, I just figured it finished <laughs> Speaking of mindfulness, I just finished a book called Mindfulness and Money by today's guest, Dominic Holder. He is an adjunct professor at London Business School and former manager at Boston Consulting Group, Boston. I said that weird. Boston Consulting Group. He has been a committed Buddhist practitioner for more than 30 years, so he's the perfect guy to co-author a book like Mindfulness and Money and his newest one, What Philosophy Can Teach You About Being a Better Leader. I wanted to talk to him because the topic of business and Buddhism, and that is money in Buddhism, seem incompatible, but they are not. And in this age, when business and business people are equated with greed and selfishness, what could be better than a guy who wants to infuse our corporate ranks with more thoughtful men and women who not only want to succeed themselves, but won't feel that they've succeeded until they've helped those around them flourish? That sounds like a good coworker, right? Wouldn't you want to, wouldn't you want a coworker who's committed to helping you flourish? Wouldn't that be the best? Have you been that coworker? Do you approach it that way? Do you approach work like as is part of your mission at work to help other people flourish? Man, that'd be a good way to think about it. I almost wish I had a job so I could test that out and see if it actually works. Dominic has an MA in history from Cambridge University and an MBA from Stanford Business School, which are good schools if you can't get into Rhodes College. Uh, His home is in Scotland where alongside his academic and client commitments, he is a crofter on the Isle of Skye. And uh, if you don't know what crofting is, I didn't. It's a form, according to Wikipedia, it's a form of land tenure and small scale food production, particular to the Scottish Highlands. Google it, C-R-O-F-T-E-R. Click on images and you'll see some picturesque and lovely images that look particularly Scottish. They'll make you want to put on a waxed Burberry coat and drink some McCollin. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy my conversation with Dominic Holder.
1: One assignment I use early on in my students' progressions through London Business School is to ask them to write down their dream job a couple of years after graduation. Then, after they've turned that in, I give them another assignment, which is to ask them to roll the clock forwards, maybe 50 years, 60 years and um, it's a sad um, but also celebratory moment um, because, Paul, you've just died. <laughs> and Your best friend is giving uh, your funeral eulogy. And I ask my students to write down on a page or so what that person would say. And um, what emerges is consistently moving because coming out of the dream job, you know, clearly there's a desire for money uh, or indeed power. Um, a desire to be potent, to have influence. But then also what seems to come out more and more strongly, uh, I've seen over the last 10 years, is yes, they want money. Yes, they want power. But also there's a very evident aspiration to do something good with it. My name is Paul
0: Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Dominic Holder, welcome to Crazy Money.
1: Well, I'm delighted to be on board with you, Paul. And um, I'm also particularly delighted to have had the invitation to talk about mindfulness, which is uh, a golden thread which might run through... Many of our lives, certainly on the better days, which is something I aspire to being more of, more mindful.
0: Sorry, well, let's start right there. I hear the word mindfulness every day or read it in a blog. How do you define it?
1: In a nutshell, it's paying attention. When I say paying attention, there may be different levels of mindfulness, awareness, um, giving our full attention to, for example, our bodies which sometimes can get left a bit behind particularly if we're engaged in rather heady career pursuits but in traditional meditation training mindfulness based meditation training students were always asked to start um, by bringing their attention to the sensations in their in their own body the feeling of the ground underneath their legs if they were sitting in the classic cross-legged position or if they're sitting in a chair What's the feeling of the chair underneath you, your feet on the floor? Are there aches and pains? Do you feel some lightness and relaxation? Not trying to change anything, I think that's a very important thing to say, but simply paying attention to how you are in a physical sense. And then we could progress from there because we might extend paying attention from physical sensations in the body to emotions. So how are we feeling? Taking stock of whether we're feeling happy, whether we're feeling sad, tired, irritated, Um, because often as we rush around from one thing to another, we can lose touch not just with how we feel as an embodied person, but we can also lose touch with our emotional states. And so mindfulness and emotional intelligence at that level um, have a very close correspondence. But we can go further still. Classically, mindfulness meditation teachers would um, invite their students to begin by being aware of paying attention to the body, to the emotions, but then to go further than that and to open your awareness to the space around you. So that could be the noises in the room. um, That could be the noises outside the room. Uh, which might be the noise of traffic in the city. Uh, If you're out in the countryside, it might be the birdsong. Again, something that we might habitually not even notice when we're very preoccupied. And one particular mindfulness discipline that's been practiced for centuries is to be able to move our awareness sometimes closer in, and um, we'd call that depth, and then also Play with our awareness and take it further out. So, we might be concentrating on the traffic noises outside the room where I'm sitting now. And uh, then, I might, um, in a spirit of experimentation as much as anything else, bring my awareness back to um, what's immediately around me in the space I'm occupying now in the little office that I'm sitting in. But we can go further than that still, and, and what I've been describing really is a progressive path, starting with a relatively easy foundation. So we could take our um, mindfulness, our awareness, our ability to pay attention to the people who are around us. So if we were in a mindfulness class with other students, we might well want to take in who they are, how we feel about them. We might then also, as we go broader still... Um, take in what it feels like to be alive. And we might also, if we go even further, pay attention to what it is to be mortal. Because um, fundamentally, in the end, all of the states of body and emotion and um, broader awareness are constantly changing. And being mindful of impermanence is probably the level that we might get to by dint of practice in those earlier stages and that would include our own impermanence
0: now we could talk about that for hours and hours but i want to bring it back to what that means for us in business and how it pertains to our relationship with money so you're a professor at london business school the term mba doesn't evoke images of flowing robes and people sitting in the lotus position for many it evokes negative connotations like greed and dishonesty, how do you hope your students will use mindfulness to conduct
1: their careers counter to that negative image? So first of all, I discovered that there is a huge mindfulness club among my students at London Business School. And I discovered this when a couple of students approached me because they'd um, taken stock uh, on Google, I guess, of what I do. And um, in fact, a close um, colleague who's who's a good friend, who's a keen meditator, recommended that these guys come and have a chat with me. And it turned out that that mindfulness club uh, now consists of several hundred people, which um, left me, quite honestly, rather gobsmacked Mm -hmm. because um, over the years I'd been approached every now and again by student groups and staff groups to um, uh, run a mindfulness class. Um, But I was was really quite astonished uh, at the scale of this. And um, beyond that, um, mindfulness is now uh, on our curriculum. There's a colleague of mine, another good friend who quite independently of me uh, connected with my co author from the book, mindfulness and money. And my co author now runs mindfulness classes in an elective course on interpersonal dynamics. Now, What's that about? My sense is that anyone coming on an MBA is looking to succeed. And of course, one of the questions that people have to grapple with more now than perhaps in the past is just what does success look like? So maybe in the old days, and this would probably be true of when I did my MBA at Stanford back in the mid-80s, some of those career choices were kind of obvious. So you'd do an MBA, and then you'd go into investment banking or maybe into management consulting. But now those choices are far less clear, and after making those choices, the outcomes are far less stable. So that, to my mind, that degree of uncertainty has driven a great uh, appetite for mindfulness and also an appetite to explore what success means. So if I'd asked my incoming students, let's say 20 years, what does success mean? A lot of them, the younger ones at least, not so much the older ones who I might come on to, and um, would have said, well, success means making money. <laughs> um, but I find the answer to that um, very different now. One assignment I use early on in my students' progressions through London Business School Um, is to ask them to write down their dream job a couple of years after graduation. Then, after they've turned that in, I give them another assignment, which is to ask them to roll the clock forwards, maybe 50 years, 60 years. And um, it's a sad um, but also celebratory moment um, because, Paul, you've just died. (laughs) and Your best friend is giving uh, your funeral eulogy. And I asked my students to write down on a page or so what that person would say. And um, what emerges is consistently moving because coming out of the dream job, you know, clearly there's a desire for money uh, or indeed power, um, a desire to be potent, to have influence. But then also what seems to come out more and more strongly uh, I've seen over the last 10 years Perhaps the financial crass has had something to do with catalyzing this. um, Is yes, they want money, yes, they want power, but also there's a very evident aspiration to do something good with it. Now, that aspiration, of course, doesn't guarantee anything because there are all kinds of temptations to misuse money and power. But maybe that is also where mindfulness will come in as a discipline, which you could say is mindfulness of purpose. So what's your career for? What's your business for? And um, this is not getting us into the usual catalogue of um, corporate social responsibility commandments. I'm personally very resistant to being told what my values should be. (laughs) But what I do encourage my students to do is to put that effort, that mindful effort, into figuring out what their own values are. And I see more and more of an appetite for that. Um, it may also be that because I've, you know, kind of come progressively more and more out of the closet in relation to this theme, that um, I, I'm students are more drawn to to what I've got to say, or more drawn to making connections. Um, but I'll tell you one thing, Paul. You know, some years back, I started doing a lot of advisory work for PwC, mm-hmm. Price Waterhouse Coopers. Sure. And I kept very quiet about um, my um, mindfulness story. And so the credentials I displayed were all about being a a strategist. And I'd spent some years working as a strategy consultant with the Boston Consulting Group. So that led on my CV. Um, but, But after I'd been working with PwC for a while, one of the senior partners took me to one side. And he said, Dominic, I've been doing a little bit of um, research, digging into you and your background. And there are all these really interesting things about you that you've never told us about. So why isn't mindfulness on your CV? We'd really love to hear about that. So... Again, I think um, there's something about um, how uh, a student group of the kind that does an MBA might move on over time as the world around us changes. And there's probably also something about how I've changed over time.
0: It seems the culture has come to seek mindfulness, though, and that the training you did a long time ago is now, as the inquiry from your friend at PwC indicates, that it's something that businesses are looking for, for some reason. Mm-hmm. What's changed?
1: What's changed? Well, I would say there's a good answer to that and a not so good answer to that. So, first of all, on the good side, there's more awareness, I would say, among the business leaders and political leaders, for that matter, that I come across, that if you really want to win commitment and engagement, uh, it's not just about the paycheck, uh, not even about a very big paycheck. People get used to very big paychecks pretty quickly as it happens. Um, But there has to be something more. And so I would argue, in fact, going right back to the origins of London Business School, a guru of mine who was one of the founding professors, Charles Handy, right from the very beginning, used to tell our students, yes, you need to learn accounting, but you also do need to read some Greek tragedies. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, so ones? they find um, Dick Brealey's corporate finance textbook on there, on the in front of them on the first day, um, together with a play by Sophocles, for instance. Um, so that's always been around, to my mind. But I would say more and more leaders are realising that um, we need we need to help people to flourish if we're going to have a successful organization in a broad sense that we can be really proud of. So that's, I would say, the good change. The bad change, and this may be a little bit controversial, is that mindfulness can be used as an elastoplast, as a band-aid. So in other words, if um, we have created an ill-functioning organization with very high levels of stress, then What we might do through our HR department is to put on a mindfulness program so that people will feel calmer and less stressed, uh, albeit they're in an inherently stressful and ill designed context. So, the bad reason may be that the workplace is becoming more difficult, old forms of organization are becoming less and less fit for purpose, and rather than grapple the nettle and redesign, uh, instead, Let's enroll a thousand people on a mindfulness training program. So, I would say two answers to your question, Paul. The good answer is about the recognition of the need for flourishing, the bad answer is about the need to paper over the cracks.
0: (laughs) Well, I want to come back to how this mindfulness is happening inside of organizations and what it means to our careers or how we can use it to optimize our careers and our enjoyment of work. But first, I want to hear about how you got into Buddhism and your journey to finally coming out of the closet. Where did you first encounter Buddhism?
1: Well, uh, in the context of your last question, when I did my MBA. (laughs) Yes, I love it. See
0: how enlightened we are, everybody?
1: (laughs) Well, I'll tell you the story um, because uh, I went to a pretty traditional business school after I'd had about four years working out in the world. Uh, It was Stanford, which at the time was renowned for the um, quality of its finance research and finance teaching, which was superb. But um, what I signed up for in my second year was an elective course called Creativity in Business. And it was led by a remarkable professor who was um, theoretically a professor in marketing, a tenured professor in marketing. And uh, I'd thought that um, the Creativity in Business elective would be some kind of design thinking course. Um, In fact, it was very much focused on everything we're talking about now. So um, I had my first taste of meditation Mike used to give us some weekly assignments. So one assignment was to spend an hour watching flowing water and write down what you learned. Another assignment was um, (laughs) uh, this week, practice the precept of paying attention. Another assignment was spend a day entirely by yourself. And again, write down what you learned from that. So this was, um, a, an extraordinary opening for me, uh, as it happened, if you know, North California, Stanford is down in the Bay area, but, um, between Stanford and the Pacific coast, there's this amazing range of mountains, the Santa Cruz mountains. Sure. And a bunch of us were sharing a, a house, which we rented off a professor high up in the Hills. And it was the most beautiful setting. So, um, and a perfect context, really, to harness a mindfulness practice to appreciating the wonderful place where we were. And as it happened, previously, the professor in question, Bob McKim, who became one of the founders of IDEO, in design thinking, as it happens, had rented the place to a group of Buddhist monks and um, somewhere in the grounds, Um, there was um, their shrine room or their shrine platform and it was a great place to to go and sit so doing the MBA in fact gave me my start and you know that was indeed part of the motivation to at at some point get back into that world of business schools and um, bring in some of what had, had got me going. Early in your
0: practice or your exploration, what was it that grabbed you and pulled you further into and made you want to learn more about Buddhism and meditation?
1: So there was kind of push and pull. So pull was... um without wanting to make it sound glib, was wanting to, um, you know, smell the roses better, um, to um, appreciate the beauty around me, um, appreciate the people I was with that much more. And there was also, um, you know, an element of, of push in terms of um, having to learn to deal with stress, having to learn to deal with bereavement, having to learn to deal with difficult questions around personal identity. So, um both of those—the the push, if you like, pain—and the pull, which is, uh, I guess, you'd say, is the search for a higher form of pleasure. Both of those were big motors that drew me. But there'd been something else, Paul, because before Stanford, in my very first job after I um, finished undergrad, my um, my very first boss who seemed like a very unlikely um, Buddhist practitioner. He was six foot three, ex-military, a classic British aristocrat. It turned out, um, after I'd been working for him for about um, six months, that um, he was indeed a highly committed Buddhist practitioner, and when I went from working with him to work in Japan, because I lived in Japan for about a year and a half in my early 20s, he introduced me to an amazing Australian poet, a guy called Harold Stewart, who's long dead now, who um, lived in a tea house in a Buddhist temple, a Shingon temple, and translated haiku, which is that very short form, very meditative um, form of Japanese verse. And um, this was in Kyoto, which is another beautiful city, um, filled with Buddhist temples and um, uh, exquisite Zen gardens. And Harold, who had then been in his 70s and I was in my early 20s, would go for strolls around Kyoto with me, talking about uh, a little bit about what he was doing. But it was more the, the, the presence and the sense of someone who was calm and kind and wise. And so I wanted some of that. Mm. Let's talk
0: about what you learned about money through your studies. What did the Buddha teach us about money?
1: Well, so the Buddha had relatively little to say about money as such. And indeed, one of his early supporters Arthur Pindika, I believe he was called, was um, a rich merchant who, um, by the way, was very generous to the Buddha and the Buddha's other disciples, buying and giving them a park that's very famous in the early Buddhist scriptures, um, where the monks and um, lay people could gather and learn and meditate, which which I guess says that um, one of the most important things that the uh, Buddha has to say about money. use it well and so use it well might um, well translate into don't hoard it and be generous with it Um, if we extend the idea of generosity use its power to make good things happen because extending that what the Buddha and other Buddhist teachers would have said is let's be clear what money And for that matter, other things that we might value won't give us. And what money will not give us is security, not fundamentally. Um, If we pile up money for the sake of security, there's never enough. But what it can give us is not so much security, but a certain kind of freedom, which is to say, um, the freedom to make um, really worthwhile things um, possible. My own take, my own take is um, that um, there was never a command to be guilty about money. Um, While it's a Christian um, precept rather than a Buddhist one, as I'm about to quote it, which I think comes from the book of Timothy in the New Testament, it's it's that um, classic tag, the love of money is the root of all evil. Mm. It's very important to check that wording because it doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It's the love of it which is to say the craving for it, the belief that we need more of it to be complete as worthwhile human beings. It's the craving that becomes the issue. So I would like to you know, also put my hand on my heart and confess that I have not become an aesthetic. <laughs> uh, I enjoy earning money. I enjoy spending it. I like good wine. I like great meals, really interesting vacations. But at the same time, Uh, You know, if I think back not so long, I lived for about eight years in a Buddhist community where we lived off a common purse on very little money. I would definitely say that um, from a lifestyle standpoint, I was no less happy living on little in that context than in getting through a lot more or vice versa for that matter. So the issue is not the money. It's the craving for it, and you could imagine the miser who hoards money, which is a pretty miserable state to be in, or you could flip that round and have the mentality of abundance, which was one of the subtitles of our book mindfulness and money.
0: I picked up a little contradictory information, or perhaps I'm just interpreting it wrong, but it is true that Buddhist monks don't touch money. Does that mean that money is unclean, or is it a risk of tainting them or something like that? What's going
1: on there? Well, I have to say, I was in Indochina um, over the Christmas and New Year period, just gone, and I was able to um, you know, take part as a donor in um, the monk's alms round. And I was um, encouraged to put sticky rice into the bowls as they came by. Uh, But I did see that some people, this was in Laos, in fact, had put money in the monks' begging bowls. Now, as you say, in the code of conduct for monks, um, money is not something they should come into contact with. And So maybe um, there was someone back in the monastery who was a lay worker who could extract the um, dollar bills, which got mixed up with the rice, so that the monks wouldn't have to handle it. But the real point of that precept is this. When you become a monk in most of the Buddhist traditions, then the proposition is that you live entirely on the generosity of others. You give other people the opportunity to practice generosity because you as a monk can only live on the basis of that generosity. And if you had your own stash of um, dollar bills, you would limit that possibility. So for someone who's chosen to live a monastic life, which I've not done, this would make perfect sense. Um, But we might also be able, even if we're not monks or nuns, to be able to live to some of the spirit of that, which is to say one of the great things you can do with um, money is to be generous with it and uh, also to receive it in the spirit of um, appreciation, gratitude, because someone's made you a gift. So um, were I to um, become a Theravadan monk with an orange robe, which is not on the plan at the moment, then indeed I would be um, taking my bowl round with my brothers and sisters, uh, or probably brothers in most traditions, and I wouldn't touch money. But the point is not that money is evil, but that um, i would made a commitment to live on the generosity of others.
0: And in that way, you're creating a connection between you and other people, as opposed to using money as a buffer between you and other people, intentionally <laughs> or not.
1: Now that, Paul, is a very important point, because of course, one of the ways we can use money particularly in a busy world, is to insulate ourselves from other and so become much less mindful of other. Mm. So, um, you know, you're flying business class, going through the first class lounge. Oh, I love separation Getting to from the others. airport <laughs> in a chauffeur-driven limousine. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Um, but then we don't have to stand in the queue and be aware of others who are also standing in line. We don't have to get on the bus. We've perhaps cut ourselves off from a lot of, uh, human life. Now, maybe to get certain things done, um, we needed, needed to make a choice to do that, but it would be a great pity if that was the way, if we were blessed with money, we'd spend all our time
0: because
1: mm. we'd be missing out on so much. Yeah.
0: I found a few concepts that, well, I found a lot of the concepts in the book really cool and interesting and uh, insightful. One of the ones that I really liked was the concept of the hungry
1: ghost. Can, ah.
0: can you share what a hungry ghost is?
1: Yeah. So um, the hungry ghost, in the images that you can, you can see in Buddhist temples, the hungry ghost has got a huge belly and a <laughs> tiny mouth, and um, they can never fill that belly. So they're always in a state of um, craving, in a state, I would say, of fearful craving. Mm. So that's um, where we'd get the hungry ghost image coming from. And and there's that insatiable hunger. And why that insatiable hunger? Because um, we need these things. For example, we need that money in order to prop up our identity. And there's never enough of it.
0: So how does that manifest in behavior?
1: So in behavior... It's going to manifest itself in stress, in depression, a grasping attitude um, towards others. You might have, by, by the way, you know, having $10 million in front of you does not um, transform you from a hungry ghost into something else. You might or might not be um, happy with it. Well, if I had and, 10,
0: I would want 20, right? My what? hungry ghost would want 20.
1: But then you probably want 40 um, because (laughs) you've still got a very complex life, and lots of cares, and you're laboring under the delusion that having a load of money will help you extinguish those cares, give you a sense of identity. Nothing wrong with the money. You can do some great things with it, but don't become dependent on it for your identity of who you are. That's my take of that very unfortunate position in which we become hungry ghosts. And, um, you know, by the way, you know, any of us, including me, can at times be in that hungry ghost state. And this will be where mindfulness um, may be a very important tool to help us recognize, first off, that we are in that kind of state.
0: So just being aware of it is an important first step.
1: You know something which of course, does make this challenging is that we live in a in a very materialist culture. When I say materialist, it's a culture which tells us that material things can make us feel complete, make us happy. Well, my take on that is we we don't need to put on the hair shirt. And in fact, um, uh, in traditional Buddhist teaching, the flip side of craving is aversion. And aversion is just as unhelpful so i would you know give one has to be always very careful about giving advice and certainly not in a in a podcast when you have no idea who's listening but the sort of advice i try and give myself in this in this context is to say yes it is a materialist culture and, you know, let's rejoice in the, in, in the good things it makes possible, among other things, making it possible to download a, a book called Mindfulness and Money um, in an electronic format. We wouldn't have that possibility without a materialist culture. But then, you know, what I also ask myself is, am I making just that little bit of an effort to also find some joy in simple things? which don't involve spending a lot of money. Mm. Um, am I making time for those simple things? Because you know, sometimes, not always, those simple pleasures uh, are the best. And awareness of that means that I don't get uh, kind of um, uh, taken away by money. Uh, I'd like to be in charge of money rather than money in charge of me.
0: There's a lot of applications to this from personal behavior and around how we shop, how we consume, how we save. But looking at these things from an organizational perspective could be interesting as well. How has Buddhism changed the way that you see business? And here's a good place for me to mention that last year you co-authored a book called What Philosophy Can Teach You About Being a Better Leader.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How has Buddhism impacted the way you see business?
1: So there's several layers of answers to that. One answer is to do with... Um, how I see business success. And a lot of my strategy training was to look for business success in competitive advantage. And competitive advantage is all about um, getting one over the other guys so that we can uh, grab or capture the value that might be out there in a market. And it would be Facile for me to say that um, in a business, we don't need to make money and that we don't need to capture some share of the value that's available in a given market. But if that pursuit of value capture becomes relentless, uh, we're starting to fall into one of the traps that Buddhism highlights, the trap that's uh, the delusion that we're fundamentally separate from other people that our actions don't have particular consequences, that it's kind of me against the world, which fundamentally I would call a poverty mentality, Mm. which is to say there's a cake and uh, success is about grabbing the biggest share we can of it. (laughs) Now, the flip side to that would be the mindset that's more about creating value more about creating value through collaboration with others. So this could be, if you like, at a micro level. How do we behave with colleagues? Are we trying to make ourselves out to be the star all the time, the indispensable person, the loudest voice in the room, the person who gets all the blessings from the boss? Or you know, are we willing to... Um, except that we don't always need the limelight uh, in order to make a worthwhile contribution or even find ourselves as worthwhile people. And at a more macro level, this would be saying, you know, to what extent are we deliberately leaving some money on the table? Because by doing that, we're opening up more opportunities to grow the cake. Rather than simply grabbing as much as we can of it, are we opening up the possibility to work creatively with business partners, with our customers, with our suppliers, rather than trying to screw them? (laughs) And that's, uh, I would say, the flip from a poverty mentality in business to more of an abundance mentality, which for me is closer to the spirit of the Buddhist teaching, which is saying that the idea of ourselves as being separate permanent entities is delusory and we need if we're going to find any kind of happiness we need to accept that we're very much interconnected with others that uh, you know who we are is not permanent and we can't fix ourselves for all time in a given position. All of that translates into the world of business, which is to understand that our business success is totally independent with the success of others who we need to help to flourish, other organizations, other people, and that uh, you know what we are is, like anything else, subject to change, even death.
0: Now, you talked at the top of the interview about how some companies are implementing mindfulness in a reactionary way who out there is implementing it proactively in the way that it should be done?
1: Mm. So when we say the way it should be done, let's be clear, any kind of mindfulness teaching is going to help people, whether in the workplace uh, or elsewhere, because it's better to be mindful than not. Sure. Um, the, the, The question is, to what end? So have we created an organizational nightmare And we're using mindfulness uh, as a balm for that, and then avoiding the necessary task of redesigning the organization. Or can we use mindfulness not so much, uh, if you like, as um, an aspirin, but can it be more, if you want to use that um, slightly clunky analogy, rather than it being a painkiller, can it become a vitamin? So from that standpoint, back to where we began, if I'm more mindful of how I am in my body and my emotions, if I'm more aware of the space around me, the people in it, the sense of being alive and contributing, being mindful of purpose, then that opens up many, many possibilities for me to be far more creative than I might otherwise be. Uh, And it also will be a great antidote to fear, because fear is one of the great enemies of creativity, and fear is the emotion that will kick us back into that very defensive state of um, wanting to protect ourselves from the world around us, and perhaps grab money, grab value, in order to defend ourselves from the threats we experience. So mindfulness come back to the push and pull from my own experience. So mindfulness can help us with pain, and it can help us with um, creativity, life affirmation, and both. And just as an example there, Paul, one um, organization with Buddhist roots that I've become pretty involved in in the UK, but it's also active now around the world, is called Breathworks, And Breathworks was originally developed by a friend of mine who had to deal with chronic pain following a serious car accident. Um, So she's wheelchair bound much of the time, but she's been able to use mindfulness, tools of mindfulness, not just to manage pain, because part of the issue with pain is not just the physical pain itself, but the fear of pain. The anticipation of pain and um, mindfulness can help us stay just in the moment rather than be fearful of the moment after next um, but what she's done and getting on for 10,000 people have benefited from breathworks courses often people let's say suffering from cancer and suffering from severe stress um, from depression um, as well as helping people to deal with pain also, it opens up the possibility that through practicing more mindfulness, we can become that much less fearful, that much more confident, that much more rooted in our own sense of self rather than needing other things and money to prop it up. So that would be where mindfulness can take us. And in organizations which are simply using mindfulness training to cover up the stressful environment their leaders have created, they may be missing out on much, much more of the possibilities that mindfulness can offer.
0: Well, you know, and dealing with that, dealing with a stressful work environment or toxic coworkers is one thing that maybe mindfulness can help with. But also I want to ask about some of us out there feel stuck in work that doesn't feel fulfilling, whether they're 25 or 55. Can we nevertheless find meaning in the slog?
1: Well... I have to confess that most of the time I enjoy my work, and I find I've you know, ended up, at least for now, in a very privileged position where I work with, by and large, people who I like, who bring me a lot of inspiration, and I find the tasks I do hugely engaging. Maybe too much so. But I am very mindful of the fact that a lot of people who I come across are not in that kind of position. What do you do? Now the reason why i declared my own hand is of course it's very easy for me to say oh, of course by being mindful you can find depths of meaning <laughs> that may be rather hidden in your humdrum working life just take my uh,
0: online course for
1: <laughs> <laughs> but let me give you just one one example i mentioned pwc price waterhouse coopers mm-hmm. um, a little while ago and they had a guy on their reception desk called john who was a truly wonderful guy. He always remembered my name. He gave me, you know, such a fresh and engaging greeting um, that I felt, you know, just a little bit better about myself and the day as I arrived, rather than thinking, how am I going to impress these partners who are my clients? And I was then talking about John, the doorman, to um, a guy called Ian Powell, who was at that point the managing partner of a big chunk of PwC. He was saying, this guy is one of our most valuable people. Uh, He's not just a human resource, he's a resourceful human. Ian went on to say that there'd been many difficult client situations which John had rescued because of the way when he saw someone with their face like thunder leaving the head office building, he'd... um, uh, he would find a way of saying something appropriate. And in fact, when they were running their, um, their tent at Davos for the World Economic Forum, they always took John, the doorman, along with them to be on the door of the PWC tent in Davos. And Ian said, frankly, he's a lot more valuable than some of my senior professional <laughs> colleagues because clients just love the guy. Now, yeah. you could say being on a reception desk is, uh, you know, as hum- a job as you get. But John, the doorman, by taking what I believe was a really heartfelt interest, mindful interest in those who were coming through the door, number one, I'm sure a much more interesting and engaging job for himself, was also you know, able to provide incredible value to others. And I've got another example. So, um, I go to um, Tesco, which is one of our big supermarket, hypermarket chains in the UK. And on the cash desk, I always look out for this lady who always wants to um, talk uh, about what's been going on in my life. Um, She's very interested in mindfulness, by the way. She's working on the checkout till. Now, Frankly, I think that drives some people in the queue behind me and the line behind me crazy because um, you know, they want to get their stuff packed up and present their charge card or credit card as quickly as possible and get out of there. But I've just make sure if I can see her working on the checkout line. Um, that I'll take my shopping cart to her checkout line. And could she be more productive in terms of whacking people through that checkout line faster? Might her supervisor at Tesco be feeling that? Maybe, but if that supervisor at Tesco has got half a brain or half a heart, um, they'll realize that this is someone who's been able to invest a lot of meaning in a seemingly humdrum job. And um, this is you know an easy thing for me to say. And I imagine it's very difficult for many people to get to the state of finding meaning in small things, seemingly small things, that the Tesco lady or John at PWC had done. Um, but it does give me confidence that it's possible. Right. Furthermore, and this would come back to our recent book about um philosophy and leadership and flourishing, if organizations don't give people the chance to be themselves in the kind of jobs that we're talking about, then they might as well have robots.
0: Ah, perfect segue because as I'm reading the book toward the end, I underlined 20 times and put five stars next to was this passage. You write that we can pursue a life, and I will insert the word career as a synonym for life or as an important part of that life. We can pursue a life that is a magical discovery of who we can be as we rise to our fullest potential. Imagine your life as a work of art, a unique masterpiece that you are painting Perhaps you've had glimpses at various times of your life of what you could be if you let that the qualities that you most treasure come to flourish. And, <laughs> and as I think of myself and friends of mine, what's on our minds, I just screamed, I want this, you know. I found myself as I was considering leaving Facebook many years ago. I couldn't articulate it, but what I wanted to say was I want to do work that's me being me. And I mm-hmm. didn't know how to say that in the context of a corporate environment. <laughs> what do you tell people out there that are feeling that urge to discover themselves and bring it more into the world?
1: Mm-hmm. I can remember being invited um, back to Boston consulting group where I worked long ago, shortly after I'd been on a long mindfulness um, meditation retreat and, um, the guy who was a managing partner at BCG said, "Um, Dominic, we'd love to have you come in and um, talk about what you found out during your four months living up on a mountain. But he then said, please don't make it too alluring. Because I'd be very sad if um, all of my staff quit and went off to join you on that mountaintop as a result of hearing about this.
0: So make them just mindful enough. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, Just flourishing enough. um, So they'll be willing to uh, work the longer hours. Well, that's kind of um, not, not where we want to land. So I would come back. First of all, to to a couple of propositions. Work doesn't have to be the whole of life. And I ask my students this. I ask, you know, who's going to be, you know, working 40 hours a week or more? And um, everyone puts their hand up. Then I say 60 hours a week. A lot of hands stay up. 70. Uh, well, how many hours a week did you work at um, Facebook, Paul? Uh, I'd say 60 well, that, that's um, that's still, you know, kind of um, uh, pretty hard charging. And then if you add travel on top, that's an awful lot.
0: Actually, the truth, I mean, I think the truth <laughs> is, is we don't know how many hours we work today because we're always on, you know.
1: Yeah. You're sort of um,
0: half working 100% of the time.
1: Right. So this may be where mindfulness, um, also mindfulness of purpose can hold a key. Because look, if, if um, you are going to be... Um, a hundred hours a week to the work environment, then it would be a total tragedy, a total tragedy if you're unable to unfold your potential in that environment. And uh, what I uh, you know ask my students to do or suggest that my students do when they're considering my, where they might go in that dream job is you know to what extent does that dream job have a bearing on the eulogy that they'd like to um, imagine? at the end of the journey. Because if there's no relationship between the two and you're going to be working 100 hours a week, then it's a terrible mistake. But it could be, and I have friends who do this, it could be that um, I'm someone who actually is pretty disciplined about not being always on, who's willing to do a job which is not particularly glamorous, but to declare some boundaries around that, Yes, to bring you know mindfulness into the workplace as the Tesco lady I described and John at PwC did um, but then you know crucially, we're not going to be finding uh, the opportunities that we want for flourishing in the workplace. then we have to make space, and we have to make space mm. and And what I see kind of tragically is sometimes you know for, again around London business school. I look at some of what, unfortunately, in the academic world, we call support staff. I hate that term because, uh, you know, it implies that they're supporting, that they're some kind of underling. Mm -hmm. But these are the people who are dealing with IT problems, who um, would be um, uh, helping getting teaching materials sorted, uh, who'd be uh, organising lecture theatres. You get the idea. Um, Well, I found out that there's one guy who, is really pretty well known in music circles. he's got quite a well-known band. Then there was an older lady who was a secretary who's a really great potter. Now there's then that whole hinterland that you can surprise yourself by and actually get quite a bit of inspiration from. so back to that quote in the book, which is you know a lovely poetic quote, so hopefully it is indeed possible for um for us, rather than it just being left as poetry in a book, there's an adage which um, I'm taking from one of my colleagues at London Business School, a guy called Rob Goffey, and his adage was this. He said, in the business context, you want to be yourself, as you do in any context, but it's not just being yourself, being yourself more. He says, Be yourself more with skill. And so I think we could underline the with skill piece because the with skill piece means having the courage, the inventiveness, the confidence, the tools to be able to ensure that one way or another we do make that space in which we and others who we're responsible for can flourish. So yes, we want to be ourselves more, but that will remain a poetic aspiration if we don't also do so with skill.
0: Fantastic. I really appreciated the care you put into your book, and I learned a lot from it, so thank you for reading it. For our listeners again, the name of the first book is Mindfulness and Money, The Buddhist Path to Abundance, and the new one is What Philosophy Can Teach You About Being a Better Leader. This is my guest, Dominic Holder. Dominic, if someone is interested in learning more about Buddhism, what starter text would you direct them to read?
1: If you get online and put into the search box, start a text on Buddhism, um, you'll find um, a lot of good Buddhism for beginners type stuff. There's a lot of that out there. But there are two that I would recommend for those who find a story inspiring. There's a great book by a friend and Buddhist co-worker of mine who's called Vishvapani Blomfield which is simply titled Gautama Buddha, which is indeed the name of the Buddha, Gautama Buddha. And it's the story of the Buddha's life, but along the way, bringing the teaching of the Buddha to life truly magnificently. And I would regard that as one of the best books about the Buddha, the Buddha's life and teaching um, that we have seen in the current generation, which is quite a claim, but I'd stand by that. And then if we were going to go back to a great book, a magical book, beautifully written from a previous generation, I would um, recommend putting on your shelf that classic by Hermann Hess, Siddhartha, which is a fictionalized story of the Buddha and the Buddha's closest friend. Mm. And then for going back to the source, to um, the Buddha's teachings as such, the source I'd recommend, which you'll find in a slim volume from many publishers, is the Pada, um, which is the collection of um, the classic oral teachings that the Buddha gave, probably in about, if I'm thinking of my copy, in about 70 pages.
0: It's an efficient read. Worthwhile. I'll put links to each of those in the show notes. Where can our listeners find out more about your work, Dominic? So you
1: could look for me, uh, Dominic Holder, on Amazon. Uh, You'll find my author page. And you would also be able to find me, of course, on LinkedIn. And um, I'll welcome very much connections from this um, webinar. Uh, If you make a request, just mention how we met. Uh, virtually through the webinar.
0: Wonderful. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today.
1: A great pleasure, Paul. May you flourish.
0: And you as well. Thank you again, Dominic. I really enjoyed our conversation and your book made me think. So it was uh, very worthwhile. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoy what we do here at Crazy Money, it sure would be a lot of help if you would go to the ratings and review section of the podcast app on which you are listening to this program. And uh, you throw us a few stars, you throw in a nice rating, say something nice about me, about my hair, about my voice, about my insights, about my jokes, you know, whatever. That'd be nice. Seriously, ratings and reviews, how you sort of demonstrate that you have a good podcast that has value and meaning to people. And if it has any value and meaning to you, sure would appreciate your endorsement. Thank you again for listening. Thank you, Mike Carano, editor, producer extraordinaire. Make me sound smart.